Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page ad-free. So now listen, gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're revisiting our conversation with the great Amy Mann about the albums that made her the artist she is today. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll also hear from some of you, our listeners. But first, Amy Mann. You know, Greg, we try to bring a critical eye to every artist, no matter how long we've known them and their work and how friendly they've been to us. But Amy Mann is someone we've admired for decades, since her new wave days until Tuesday, up to her Oscar-nominated work for the soundtrack of Magnolia, and right to the present with her current album, Queens of the Summer Hotel. We have heard that she is a great music analyst, so we have decided to launch a segment we'll do from time to time with artists we've talked to several times in the past, invite them to play critic with us, and walk us through a musical biography of sorts as a listener. You know, what made you the artist you are today? What could be more fun? than talking to somebody who really cares about music, who also happens to be a great artist in their own right, talking about the stuff that they love. Uh, We've asked Amy to choose five albums that have meant a lot to her at different times in her life. And the first one she chose, we're going to go more or less chronologically, was Harvest by Neil Young. I was a little kid and um, a babysitter introduced the kids to this record and I was like just so excited I mean I just thought it was so cool sounding you know Harvest really does have a an interesting sound it's kind of like a very melancholy and introspective sound I really think he was kind of at his best I have to say I was a little bemused by a man needs a maid I was like (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was gonna say that might be the one I was thinking that maybe I'd get a maid Find a place nearby for her to stay Just someone to keep my house clean Fix my meals and go away Like the sentiment expressed is so, I mean, you know, deeply sexist, but, you know, but also very prosaic, like, a man needs a maid. I mean, I think the story is that he's like saw this actress in a movie and she was playing a maid and he like had a big crush on her. So maybe that was it. Like that makes a little more sense. Mm. Mm. Um, because just, just like a man needs a maid. Like, come on, Neil, learn to fold a shirt. <laughs> Why you you can't use a mop, Neil Young? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you listen to that song for the first time and you're you're young and you may not appreciate you know what's going on there. I I, I remember hearing this album and. I had no context for a man needs a maid. Yeah. But later on, you kind of go, that that's kind of weird. Like, you know, yeah. you just, you know, you wouldn't say that to, to somebody, right? I, I mean, it's I just, definitely thought it was weird at the time. I mean, I sort of yeah. consciously thought it was weird at the time. What struck me also as being weird was, as you say, like the production was so with like this orchestral swelling yeah. was so out of sorts with the 
sentiment of the song, the, I mean, I didn't really think about it, but it, it definitely struck me as being kind of weird. It's hard to make that but the rest of the stuff on that on that record, I mean, I say this as in, in the best possible way, the plodding nature of the band, we, I, you know, it was just <laughs> like, it just had that like kind of, we're just sitting on a porch, you know, out in the country, playing acoustic guitar, just taking it easy. It felt like it was really of its time, that classic acoustic guitar singer-songwriter thing. You know, that had a really formative effect on me. But always with the Neil Young twist. Oh, right? yeah. Because it's so far removed from like a James Taylor or any Laurel Canyon album of that era. Because he's just weird. He is, right? He is weird. He's made so many records that are inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> it almost seems like an accident that this record, you know, and the material and the melodies and stuff like all kind of gelled in the, in the perfect yeah. way. Yeah. You, you think about the darkness of a song like The Needle and the Damage Done, I think everybody thought of this, well, that's his soft rock album, you know, what, whatever soft <laughs> oxymoron it means. But, uh, you know, then you have The Needle and the Damage Done, and, and that's a harrowing song. It's just like, wow. It really that was is. another one. Yeah, and it and it seemed, you know, like of course, like didn't really know what was going on, but even as a little kid, you kind of knew that something important was being talked about. I sing the song because I love the man. I know that some of you don't understand. Milk blood to keep from running out. Which really stuck with me, the idea that you can talk about really kind of important things or deep subjects in a very personal way, like an almost conversational way. I thought that was, that just had a, like a really good sound. And, you know, his his weird voice was kind of compelling mm-hmm. and, you know, the stripped down nature of the instrumentation. I've seen the needle and the damage done A little part of it in everyone But every junkie's like a setting sun yeah, this is playing into um, having uh, release mental illness and now what you're calling, in quotes, part two, Queens of the Summer Hotel, a new album. Yeah, yeah, all right. Needle in the damage done. There's a line there. Yeah. To, to young Amy Mann. Can you just burn it out so thoroughly? You'll never see a trace of yourself in the spark. Is that when you got the singer-songwriter bug? Thinking, well, if he can do it, I can do this. I mean, <laughs> no, that's, I did have the moment later, but that was kind of in like the punk new wave era where there was so right. so much like ridiculous music that, you know, there were some artists that I was like, look, I, like it's anything goes now, you know, like yeah, you don't I really have to know to what you're that. doing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, not if he could do it, I could do it, but I want to do that. You know, I want to yeah. almost specifically sound like him. I mean, there were other people that obviously really loved Dylan and really loved the Beatles, but the Beatles musically felt very out of my grasp. But to, you know, get a songbook that had those little squares that showed you where to put your fingers on the strings, that the and you chart. could play yeah. a Neil Young song. I mean... I couldn't play the finger picking stuff because it was, you know, that was too complicated for me, but I could get through it. You know, I could, 
I could strum it and sing it, and it was a song, and that was like a real revelation. Old man, look at my life, 24 and there's so much more. Live alone in a paradise that makes me think of two. Well, and it had the two biggest hits of his career, um, you know, Heart of Gold and Old Man. And then he famously kind of sneered at that record in the liner notes to um, Decade. Yeah. Really? Where he said, you know, I like, yeah, the, the quote was, it put me in the middle of the road. Traveling there soon became a bore, so I headed for the ditch. You know, and he made a series of weird records right after that, right? Uh, uh-huh. On the beach and things of that, of that he nature. He was almost embarrassed by Heart of Gold. Yeah. yeah. So, but those songs obviously connected too because a, a huge audience, you know, found out who Neil Young was, you know? And they were great melodies. I mean, great melodies. Um, Yeah. You know, he could really bring it. Like, those did not sound like throwaway songs at all, except for the (laughs) aforementioned Man Needs Made, which we'll never figure out. But Heart of Gold was a great song. Like, I, I just remember hearing that, hearing that on the radio. You know, I used to keep the radio on at night while I slept, and hearing it come on the radio, it's like... You know, you really got a feeling from that song. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. You keep me searching and I'm growing old. You said um, A Man Needs a Maid was a throwaway, and I I think it's not a, not a great Neil Young song. But I, I think the one thing that I've always liked about Neil Young, that no matter what particular point in his career he was in, and there have been some pretty weird points where you're just going what is he thinking yeah i don't think there was ever an insincere moment where he was like i'm i'm faking this i'm like i think he meant everything he said in the moment and yeah. you look maybe you look back on it and you go that was kind of dumb but that guy never phones it in no you yeah know? i it, agree with you i think it, like when it when there's something off the wall it's because he is truly himself wackadoodle yeah, you know, and he likes to thwart people's expectations. You yeah. know, the man who wrote Ohio also says even Richard Nixon has got soul. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I mean, the least cool thing you can say in the early 70s. Oh, and, the least cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that is the least cool soul. I love that that's like the... Even Richard Nixon has got soul. I know. That's Neil, man. Well, he's yeah. very, you know what? We he's very generous. Him. He's a very generous person. Can I see you and say So, Steely Dan, Can't Buy a Thrill, oh number God. two Love this of the albums that shaped Amy May. I'm surprised by this one. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't get Steely Dan, but Cot loves them. Oh, there's always raging arguments about Steely Dan. So there's people who love them, some that hate them. Which I get. I think this Steely Dan record I've listened to more than any other one because besides the fact that it was their first, every single song on it I think is fantastic. It's hard to explain to people why Steely Dan is great if they don't get it because I I think they have a real attitude and the attitude really gets in the way of you enjoying the music because part of that attitude feels to me like a kind of misogyny. It was really hard to get past that at the time. 
especially because Steely Dan fans were all dudes and they all had that attitude. You couldn't like be a woman and be a champion of Steely Dan at like at the at the moment. Even though there were, you know, like I certainly enjoyed their songs, but but I think in later life I've really come to Steely Dan like during the pandemic was that was literally the only records I listened to. And wow. and I can't really tell you why. Like obviously their musicianship is incredible. I love his weird voice I always have because it's so him. Like nobody else sounded like that. Donald he wasn't Pagan, doing yeah. like the fake bluesy southern accent that everybody else was at the time. A world become one of salads and sun. Only a fool would say that. You know, they have those jazzy chords and kind of modal harm you know, harmonic structures, but but these melodies just floated on top of it and completely worked. And their lyrics are fantastic. They're like, you know, musical level specificity. Uh, they really do paint a picture. I heard it was you talking about a world where all is free. It just couldn't be, and only a fool would say that. If you listen to them a lot, you start to hear common themes, <laughs> and eventually you go, man, these, these dudes are f***ed up. Like, it's not just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? It's, yeah, they're bizarre. It's not just that they have like this supercilious attitude and are weird towards women and like like to talk about this sort of drug scene. It's it started to feel to me like there's a serious drug addiction and serious like trauma and problems that and I think that's why I started to relate to them because even though maybe there's not a lot of self awareness about what's behind the problems, I, I sense like mm. there's a lot of pain and trauma mm. under those lyrics. That's an interesting read, and I, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're, they sort of came out of this hipster East Coast intellectual yeah. background with this really dark sense of humor, yeah. really dark. But, you and, know, um, why do you need a dark sense yeah. of humor? Because you've gone through some shit, you know? I, right. I'd read right. somewhere that Walter Becker was, like, had this really abusive relationship with his mother, something like that. I mean, I maybe I'm not getting this right, but it definitely gave me the impression that that maybe he came by his complicated relationships towards women, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Uh, I think with time and distance, I, I started to, to see it like damaged people making art and trying to make sense of their damage. Another um, Amy Mann theme. I can, I can, yeah, I can see yeah, this. Yeah, for real. I mean, think about real in the years. Like this guy is and not like every verse. He's like, why don't you like me as much as this other dude? Like that's the whole <laughs> song. I mean, that's yeah. like, that's really pathetic. And with this false yeah. bravado, yeah. like you wouldn't know a diamond if you held it in your hands. You're like, <laughs> well, you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand. The things you think are precious, I can't understand. Girl didn't choose him. Like it's, it's a sad story. Yeah, get over it. It's Move a, on. Yeah. It's a complaint, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a sad complaint. Are you gathering up to teach? Have you had enough of mine? Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. Are you gathering up the 
I loved everything about it. I love their groove. You know, I mean, obviously everybody talks about like their obsessive musicianship and recording and stuff, but but they really are very soulful. I wanted to ask you about that, you know, because they're the paradigm in the recording studio history of spending, you know, three and a half days to get a snare drum sound. Right. Yeah, 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 I mean, you've you've made records in less than three and a half yeah. days. Yeah, I mean, mean, that's cocaine. You know, that's drugs, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not wrong. <laughs> right, right. No, that's true. Obsessive, well, yeah. compulsive. Yeah. yeah, and that's also the '80s. I mean, like we all had, you know, our engineers took three days to get a snare drum sound. Like, you know, those were the days. We're like, oh, really? Do we have to do this? But mm, you yeah. know, I mean, you well, just thought it was normal. The Steely Dan hardcore fan base identifies this record as the outlier of the bunch like it was probably their loosest i mean in terms of their approach to the recording it hadn't really evolved into that like i thought it it became very icy and remote around asia you know i thought it became a little just it didn't feel right it didn't feel like real music anymore but this song this album has sort of a looseness to it i mean you know describing steely dan you know taking with a grain of salt but it was practically acoustic like you know it had there was a lot of acoustic guitars there was a lot of pedal steel you know a different guy sang i mean i i should know but but i'm not enough of a geek to remember musicians names Um, david palmer was the guy and david palmer uh, that's right when you And that was because Fagan was apparently unsure about his voice as a live instrument, so he said, we got to bring this other vocalist in to, you know, make sure I can deliver live, and then then they realized, this guy's all wrong for these lyrics. We don't need that. We don't need this pretty voice. As a kid, I think, I thought it was the better voice because it's just sort of technically like a smoother, prettier voice, but... I just grew very attached to Fagan's voice. It's so weird. I mean, I get people going like, maybe this is not the guy you want to have singing lead. But mm-hmm. I'm but I'm glad they did. Like it was such a breath of fresh air to have this idiosyncratic vocal style. When you know she's And you know, the other thing about Steely Dan, I mean, I agree that this is a bit of an outlier, like this is practically their acoustic album, but there's a thing about them that sounds like the future, but also has nostalgia. And it's like a really nice, like it's a nice combination. Like they always sound like the future. It never sounds dated to me. I don't know why. Hmm. Well, they they do have that bebop background and, and there's some Latin stuff on this record too. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, you know, kind of, visionary in the in the way they were sort of blending these different eras and styles so yeah i I know what you mean so you said during the pandemic steely dan was your go-to was it all the all the steely dan records or this one in particular or i'm curious you know i always start out with this one because it's so great and and uh, i really got like attached to the one with boston rag on it You know, Greg, since we first aired this episode, Amy had a little dust-up with Steely Dan. <laughs> he was booked to open a tour with them, but then was removed, and it sounded like the rationale may have been sexist. Yeah, it was a little weird there, Jim, for sure. Uh, I was glad to see that Amy and uh, Donald Fagan were able to connect after that and bury the hatchet, so to speak. And uh, 
Amy just asked Fagan to tell her what the song Brooklyn Owes the Charmer Under Me was really about, and he complied. Amy says it involves a bad neighbor and a pet iguana. Of course. Uh, uh, Everybody knew that. Yeah, (laughs) duh, it's Steely Dan. Next, we'll hear the three other albums that made Amy Mann the artist she is, coming up on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We're on album number three out of five that shaped Amy Mann as an artist, Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom. A content warning to our listeners. This segment contains talk about suicide. Please take care while listening and seek help if you need it. Someone is always available to talk at 800-273-8255. Pretty deep into his career at this point. Was this the record that kind of turned on the light bulb about Elvis Costello for you, or were you a fan before this? I was a huge fan already, all the way down. I would say like the first record, I didn't necessarily jump on that as much, but I thought he was an amazing songwriter and I'd seen him a couple of times live, really loved it, loved this year's model. And I think what this record, this was 1982 and, you know, there was that kind of punky new wave, but, you know, sort of basic rock music that, you know, like Blondie was playing and bands like that and then this record came out and it was like the 80s just really took a turn because it was <laughs> so deep you know like his wordplay was like like out of control yeah not all good things come to an end now it is only a chosen few he just really, you know, I mean, he like just jumps into language and like twists it and shapes it and and turns it in a way that nobody else does. The production on the the record was so interesting, like, you know, a lot of, you know, kind of different sounds. It wasn't like set up the mic and have the rock band play. Yeah. It was more of a studio creation. And, you know, I just thought, I mean, I listened to that record over and over. It was a not a Nick Lowe production, which was, you know, Costello was just sort of breaking that bond with Nick. And right. he said, I got some ideas about what I want to do, and I don't think Nick will have the patience to execute them because yeah. he was like a bang it out guy. So he, got, he hires Jeff Emmerich, who freaking did all those, all those Beatles, Beatles records, records yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can so, hear that. Yeah, you can hear a Beatle thing. Sliding down the best in your Sunday You know, I think we were all in the mood to, like, have a little Beatles flavor come back because it had been a while. Mm -hmm. There had been enough punk, raw, ragged. Yeah, or just, you know, kind of straight ahead. And And it was really interesting to see him in that context. And, you know, I think it was just kind of eye opening because you realize that he was, uh, you know, that he was an artist that had so many facets. And like now, of course, you're like, I mean, I literally can't keep up. He's, you know, he's <laughs> kind of unbelievable. Like I'm I'm very envious of his, you know, just the, the breadth of ideas and the rate of ideas. Not all of them good, Amy. 
and I say to you, <laughs> the Juliet letters. I love the Juliet letters. You Get have out to of see, here. You have I've to see it live. I've never met anybody who likes that album. You have to see it live. That is one of the best really? live shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Ah, wow. So the Juliet Letters was the was a string quartet record in uh, yeah yeah. Let's see. When did like, that come like out? Like Romeo's in, writing to Juliet in '93, another decade from that. Yeah. I thought I'd write to Juliet, for she would understand. Amy, so here's the thing about Elvis. You know, there are fans who want him to make this year's model over and over again, and he's yeah. not going to do that. No, he's like exactly. every record's different. Exactly. Is, so has that been a model for you? Like I would say, there's a foundation of Amy Mann music, but then you seem to be able to like there's branch out balls. from that. Curve like, your, balls, do yeah. your fans ever tell you, Amy? I just wish you'd just make folk poppy records. Do Magnolia forever. again? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, that's interesting because I don't really get that. But I mean, I don't know if somebody's going to come up to me and say. Maybe in an Instagram comment, that's Instagram comment level. Why don't you do... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I feel like I've realized that I'm the kind of artist that however different I think or the production is or that I try to make the production, once you stick this vocal on it, it's all going to sound like like mm. a, like sad folk music. There's just no getting around it. Like there's, <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah. there's no rocking hard enough for me. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of why it was so interesting to be in a band with Ted Leo, because I could write things and then hear like a singer singing them as I would have wanted to sing. But I just don't have like the power, you know, that sort of powerful rock voice. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so of all the Elvis records, is this the clear favorite or is this the one that sort of like really where you turn the corner uh, in, in, in appreciating his music? I think it's the one that I listened to the most, uh, that I was the most fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became kind of a, like a high water mark, a standard of songwriting that would, I mean, 1982, like, I can't even tell you how far away from reaching that kind of, you know, more complicated writing. But you were making music at that point, no? I was, but you know, it was definitely you know, kind of punky art rock, dumb songs about like robot dogs, you know, like it was, it was <laughs> you know, like new, new wavy, dopey, you know, dopey stuff. Which is a fun stage to go through. And like, for me, I really needed to try a bunch of different things before I, you know, like eventually started writing songs on uh, on acoustic guitar and realizing like my thing really is closer to Neil Young than it is to like, you know, B-52s. Yeah. yeah. So, so the production on this record, I don't think you've ever made a record quite on this level. I think he's got a 40-piece orchestra on one, yeah. one of the tracks on this record. I mean, it sounds like it's something that you like, but you said, I, I'm not going to go there personally. I don't know. If we if we did a Patreon and got you a 40-piece orchestra, would you do something with it, Amy? My, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my producer is a great arranger, and he, you know, we have a string section. It's a smaller section, but I think they're yeah. more like eight strings or 12 strings, something like that. It showed a girl, a startled Your next choice, I think, going again chronologically, The Loud Family, Plants and Birds and Rocks and Things, 1993. 
Interesting choice because I thought like okay digging deep. If you're gonna go Scott Miller, maybe game theory would be because that that's where everybody got to know them. Mm-hmm. So what's your history with them? This is the record I had just at the time. I I think I read a review of this record or I had heard about it or something, and I got it and I I honestly thought it was like one of the greatest things that I ever heard. And it's interesting because the production is also like the Elvis record is a little florid. It's kind of more like a you know, smaller studio, do it yourself. There's not like an orchestra, but but there are a lot of ideas. There's a lot of interesting things happening. There's weird little interstitial pieces. There's great, great songwriting, great lyrics. You know, another record I really listened to over and over and over. Were you a fan of that? Uh, I always put Scott. I know he was always sort of in his own uh, uh, place, Scott Miller. Uh, but Game Theory, you know, is concurrent with the Paisley Underground and that kind of mm-hmm. revisiting of psychedelic Beatles that's happening. You yeah. Know, with Dream Syndicate and the Bangle. You've just made a record, right, with Susanna Hoffs. She's doing a record of covers, and I, I sing a duet with her um, on a Badfinger song, one of my favorite Badfinger songs that, called The Name of the Game. Were you a fan of, of that movement, and, and did you put uh, Game Theory and Miller as part of that? or Because uh, they were never even as popular as those other Paisley bands, kind of chronically underappreciated. I didn't know Game Theory, and I, so I'm mm. not really sure how I heard about it. You know, and so I just landed on this record and was like, it took me a long time to listen to anything else by them, and it's, you know, still by far my favorite. Yeah, what what else was there? I mean, I, I remember there was a Posies record, Frosting mm. on the Beater, that I listened to a lot during that time. You know, I always had a soft spot for the Dukes of Stratosphere. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> XTC in yeah. psychedelic garb. Yes. Yeah, loved it, loved it. Yeah, I was really into that. And, you know, my first record has Brit Poppy, Mellotroni, kind of yeah. birdsy. We, you know, we had Roger McGuinn play on a song. So that soft spot was there. Yeah. Uh, it's time for the Scott Miller reassessment, Greg. He's an interesting songwriter. I've always said Regenis Rain is one of, like, another perfect song. Yeah, he's a great songwriter and like lo- a lot of feeling on that record. And you know, in in light of his suicide, you know, I mean, he has a song called "Slip My Wrists" on mm. that record. Yeah, and you know, I realize on this list I have. Two albums by people who've committed suicide. We don't have to worry about you, Amy, do we? No, I mean, but I, you know, I'm, I mean, I think I probably, 
you know, you listen to this stuff and there's parts of you that really feel like you connect with these feelings. And, yeah. you know, I think like it's really I can't listen to it. Like I, I was trying to listen back to some of this stuff before we talked and it's like it's too painful mm-hmm. yeah. which is too, you know it's too bad but like you just it just doesn't uh it doesn't you know it doesn't hit you in the same way anymore You know, the one thing that strikes me about the Elvis record and then this one, they're both sort of writing outside the margins of traditional verse, chorus, yeah. pop songs. Like Scott uses a lot of almost, I would say like almost collage style yeah, arrangements. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's a little collage you know, Definitely, definitely teeters on the edge of Prague. Yeah. I don't think Elvis does. Like he's kind of his own thing. Mm-hmm. A little bit of love forever changes, too, yeah. always in Scott mm-hmm. Miller. Mm-hmm. There's an ornateness there. This is the, your introduction, essentially, to Scott Miller and, and the first Loud Family record. Did you continue to listen to their subsequent work? Did, did you find it equally inspiring? I did a little bit, and I just, you know, I, I do have this problem where, like, I'll get really fixated on one record, and then it's just impossible to get off it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nothing after this hit me in the same way, but I think that's just because I liked this record so much, I couldn't, uh, it was, I could move on. Next up, we chat with Amy Mann about the last album on her list that made her the artist she is today. We'll also hear from you, the listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. This week, we're revisiting our chat with Amy Mann. Let's jump back into the conversation. We got one more, albums that shaped Amy Mann. Uh, Amy, these are all dudes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, especially like when I was growing up, there were very few albums by, by the ladies. Yeah. I was going to well, include uh, Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, but uh, hmm. I just did an interview where I talked a lot about that, so I wanted to have a slightly different stuff. Elliot Smith, XO. First the mic, then a half second Incredibly powerful, emotional album. As you said, two albums on your list by, by artists who committed suicide. Were you crossing paths with Elliot Smith on the road while he was on his way up? Were you sharing bills? Did you meet him? Did you know him? I met him a few times. We used to play at uh, Cafe Largo in Los Angeles. I played there a lot, and he mm-hmm. also yeah. played there a lot. So we met a few times, but I, I never really had any conversations with him. My producer then, John Bryan, worked with him a lot, you know, would join him at shows. But he felt very, very, very shut down. Like, he was not a guy who, you know, sat around after the show and chatted. No, impossible interview, too. Did you ever talk to him, Greg? No, I never did. I I heard about Elliot being a very reluctant interviewee. Pulling teeth as an interviewee, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, he's an extremely traumatized person, and and you can feel it. And this record, though, uh, Beautiful Melodies, um, of all his works, he came out with a number of great records. A lot of people would say EXO is right up there. 
uh, although some would argue for the record that came right before it, I think either or. Either or, yeah. Either or yeah. was also a record that I listened to many, 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 many times. So mm-hmm. I think between those two records, um, nobody sounded like him at the time. That vocal that was like practically invisible, it was so soft, seeming mm-hmm. like he was afraid he was going to disturb the people in the next apartment or something. <laughs> you know, it was just like such a strange. You know, like he's singing in spite of himself, kind of. Cut this picture into you and me. Burn it backwards. Kill this history. It just all sounded very painful and uh, and and very like three thirty in the morning. Very recordings, yep, always. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But you know, musically, really fantastic. Sweet lyrics are really fantastic and just like a great facility with words but also you know the honesty and the the kind of like brutal like bleakness of his lyrics was you know definitely an inspiration like just a reminder of like you can write about whatever you want to and there's nothing that should be off the table you mentioned john bryan i talked with him once where we were talking about his work with you and um I said, what did you two talk about? And he goes, we would always talk about songs. And Amy was the best, maybe the best songwriter I've ever worked with, but also her ability to hear and dissect other people's songs is second to none. Like he would go, like you guys would talk about what wow. makes a song work or doesn't work all the time. So at this point, when you hear the Elliott Smith record, you are well into your career as a songwriter. You are working with Brian around, around this time. What was it about Elliot that made him kind of pop out of the pack of other people writing songs at the time that made him such a standout for you? Well, I think that there's, you know, the clarion call of, like, the damaged person. And I really, you know, I really related to, you know, that kind of rawness. Um, mm-hmm. But also just, you know, like, technically, his melodies are really great. He's a really incisive lyric writer. I like how he gets very, very specific. There's not a lot of, you know, kind of amorphous talking about feelings. He describes very specific scenarios. Like his musicianship was also much higher than you kind of think. Like he was a great piano player and like an incredible finger picker. You don't really think about that so much. You know, you think of like the guy in his bedroom. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but he was he was a great musician. He's credited with playing just about every instrument on this record. Yeah, yeah. He was he was one of those, you know, kind of a savant. So we have two artists who uh, killed themselves. And, uh, you know, Neil Young, Needle and the Damage Done. There's a lot of darkness on this list, as we talked about Steely Dan. Um, Suicide is Murder is the single leading out from your new album. What do you mean by that? The whole record came as a, it was a project that I was... They're producers who wanted to get a theatrical production based on the book Girl Interrupted. You know, they wanted to have music, you know, not necessarily musical, but, you know, that's kind of to be determined. You know, I went through the book and kind of marked out passages that that I thought would be... um, interesting scenes that could culminate in a song. And and there was there was sort of like a, a ruminative passage that the narrator has where she talks about her own suicide attempt. 
and sort of describes it as saying that you have to try to detach from what you're doing because it because it's like murder and so you know you need motive and you need opportunity you know and you have to get used to the idea that there's going to be a certain amount of of gore that it's going to be it's mm. going to be disturbing to you and that you have to try to get past that which i thought was like a kind of an important character aspect for this mm. for the narrator but you know as i was writing the song you know i kept thinking about scott and um you know another friend had had his son had had killed himself and i kept returning to this idea that you know everybody you leave behind it's just always going to feel guilty and terrible that there wasn't something that they could have done. Suicide is murder, premeditated, rehearsed tragedy. I knew Scott pretty well, but like we, we didn't really keep keep in touch that much. You know, mm. like I didn't see him that often. But you know, I mean, even I, I mean, I felt terrible. You know, like. Should I have called him the last time I was in town? And, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't make much sense, but, you know, people who are left behind are tortured by those thoughts. So, mm. yeah. Part that, of it is murdering you. Yeah. The yeah. people left behind. It's, yeah. and it's so, you know, it's so soul killing to, to feel that there's something you could have done, but not, not have seen it. More than one songwriter has said to me they, they appreciate the idea of having limitations or boundaries. Like, they kind of know what area to sort of... Suddenly they're focused, more focused on something. Oh, absolutely. Or, uh, prompt, yeah. It's so much easier to be creative if you have a limit to it, you know. Or uh, For me, that acts as a structure, you know, so I could start hanging things on it. You know, the worst thing is like the absolute, you can do anything. And you're like, well, I don't want to do anything. Like, I, <laughs> There are no rules. Yeah. Where I do I start? Give me a yeah, rule, please. <laughs> I don't want, you know, like I, I, I need rules. It's more fun to have rules. Okay. So this has been great because the formative influences of Amy Mann through the decades, which I love, that were sort of proceeding through this time. But, you know, it must be noted, there's nobody from the last 20 years. Um, your standards are incredibly high. Is there anybody in the last 20 years that has caught your ear your, uh, that, that, is a, that is at that level of songwriting that go, hmm, that's somebody I need, I need to pay attention to? I mean, probably, but it's just like hard to come up with it at the moment because in thinking about these, these records, like the records that have impact on me, I think about, the, I think about records that I really sat with and listened to you know, 50 times. And yeah. so probably I just tend to do that less as I, as I get older. And, you know, here's why. Because for me, being a songwriter is all about, you know, I have a sound in my head that I'm always trying to refine, you know, like, like a songwriting style or standards of a songwriting or, you know, making things rhyme in a certain way. And, and so it's very hard to listen to other music that isn't that. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm trying to make the music I want to hear. And so you just inevitably listen to things and go, I would never have done that rhyme or like, no, thank mm. you. Or why did you do, <laughs> you know, like your brain just starts rewriting it in your in your head. You know, like, oh, that's great, but I would go into this chord. And <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. just, it's not the same kind of experience. Yeah, uh, you're too critical. 
You're too much of a critic. I guess so. I guess that's where we <laughs> land is that I am too much of a critic. <laughs> well, everybody's a critic on Sound Opinions. Amy, man, this was great. Uh, it's just a joy listening to you talk about music and writing, and uh, we're excited about your new album, too. Thank you so much. Really nice to talk to you guys. So picture yourself What sums up all of your That wraps up our chat with Amy Mann, and now we want to hear from you. What five albums would you choose to tell the story of your life? Leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or find a link in our show notes. Now, let's hear some of those messages from you, our listeners. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Tim from Oak Park, nestled right up next to Chicago. And I really enjoyed your interview with the two Devo co-founders. It was very enlightening. And you asked about Devo stories, so I have a little bit of a Devo story. And that was in 1980, they were touring and came through Miami at the Guzman Art Center. And so I and about four or five of my friends went to go see them. We just went on a goof. We thought it was just going to be goofy and funny. And, well, it was all that. But by the time that performance was over, I had so much respect for that band as musicians. The show they put on was amazing and stunning. And it was fun and funny, and it was a goof. The guys were up there playing and performing and singing on treadmills, and they had the flower pot hats and everything. But, oh, my God, these guys were so tight. I was a convert after seeing them perform live. So that's my little story about Devo. Thanks a bunch, guys. Hey, Jim, Greg, Nestor from Chicago. Great show, interview with Mother's Ball and Casali. Devo, what an influence it had in my life. I uh, saw them at Beginnings in 1978, piled all my friends, as many as we could get into my dad's Monte Carlo and drove out to Schaumburg. I was an undergrad at Loyola University, had access to their media department's uh, audiovisual theater, and uh, brought my Devo album in. And it's glorious yellow vinyl album. Put it on the turntable, cranked it up, and all my buddies were amazed at the sound of this new and refreshing band. So it was a great interview today. Nice to reminisce. And I'm listening to the album once again today. Really enjoy your show. Thanks, guys. Love the Devo show. Back in 1983, I just went to see them at Triangle Theater in Rochester, New York. We heard that they were going to have a video with uh, pool riding skateboards. We were all skaters, so we went in our skateboard outfits. All these bright colored shorts and pads that were popular at the time. Helmets, the whole bit. We stuck out like sore thumbs. They came on with their red hats and their outfits and performed on these three long treadmills. 
the video comes on and the three riders are wearing almost exactly the same thing we had. Suddenly there's a lot of people looking at us. My friend Ernie leans over and says, I know you don't lie, but just this one time, if we're asked, that was us. After the show, spent 10 or 15 minutes signing autographs. How hot and soft this machine begs to look. All my lies are always wishes. Hey guys, it's Scott Teradash. I just heard the show on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot 20 years later, and the show brought back just such incredibly vivid memories. Um, as you remember, we had a couple video cameras jammed into the studio that night. I'll never forget how that conversation and music was so extremely cathartic just a week after the attacks. I'll never forget how unique and kind of settling the experience was. Um, it was such a terrible time, but it was such a positive experience within that time with such great people. And you know, while I'm sorry the TV show didn't make it long term, I'm really glad you guys are still at it 20 years later. I always enjoy hearing the show. Take care. Be well. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Mike from LaGrange, Illinois. Just listened to the Buried Treasures episode. Great episode. Always like finding a couple of new bands to get into. I couldn't agree more on Motorcade. That is an awesome album. They're great. I was into them on the first album. They've gotten better. I do not think they're stealing Joy Division. If anything, they're stealing a little bit of Echo and the Bunnymen. But got to remember, there's a whole generation of kids that have never heard of either of those bands. So let them steal and make it their own. Uh, anyway, great job, guys. Really liked it. Keep it going. Understand this is a quiet place. No need to run. messages a sincere thanks to everyone who left us a message everybody's a critic craig we believe that firmly if you want to let us know your opinions leave a voice message on our website soundopinions.org and what do we have on the show next week Next week, Jim, we have Dean Wareham on the show. Yes. Like, just like Amy Mann giving us five albums that made her career, Dean is going to tell us about the five classic albums that influenced him the these most. Are, these are fun to do, and this is Dean is the second time we've done it. Don't forget to check out our bonus podcast where this week uh, I interviewed the fella who signed Hootie and the Blowfish, <laughs> a band I have some history with. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 